Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. The moment you establish yourself as a trusted provider of a certain product, you have almost an unmovable advantage over your competitors. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 143 of Suncast. Today's entrepreneur has been a friend and contributor to Suncast since its inception. Luis Morales has also been involved in growing the Latin America and Caribbean solar markets for nearly a decade, having run LATAM for Enphase and dominating markets like Puerto Rico and Mexico. Today, we hear his insights into the common mistakes and pitfalls he sees when entering new markets. Luis is a seasoned professional, and you are in for a treat. Of course, as always, you can find show notes along with more great founder stories and solar startup advice for over 140 other episodes archived at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, sign up for our newsletter and check out the Suncast tribe, my inner circle of listeners and trusted advisors who receive exclusive content that goes beyond the scope of these Suncast episodes. So click the Become a Member button to learn more. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we get to have a chance to spend time with one of our own, arguably Suncast's number one fan, for sure one of the folks who has been one of the most consistent voices in my head, uh, in my email inbox, uh, in person conversations for the last three plus years. One of the first people to email me at my then new email address, nico at mysuncast.com, to say, Nico, this is great work. If there's any way we can partner, I'd love to find a way. At the time, my friend Luis Morales was running Latin America and doing quite well at it for uh, then market leader in phase. I had a tremendous amount of respect for him then, and that has only grown. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to Suncast, Mr. Luis Morales. Hey, Nico. It's just an honor to be here sitting down with you. This is great. And to have the whole interview for myself, I'm giddy about it. I'm just I'm just uh, really excited about it. Yeah, likewise. And I, uh, I'm forlorn that it has taken so long because for those of you who've been listeners in the spring, maybe right around this time, 2016, we launched the LATAM Entrepreneur Series that was uh, effectively sponsored by Enphase. It was the first time that a corporate sponsor partnered with us, and it was a lot of fun. And so the only interview we really have with you on the show so far is your perspective on why this series needed to be, you, you felt like it needed to happen, and why you were willing to sort of help bring it into existence. And at that time, you introduced me to a number of uh, Latin American leaders that I now call friends. We've talked a lot about getting you on the show. And, you know, frankly, one of the uh, hesitations has been, well, I'm not working for Enphase anymore, right? Or, yep. And when you were at Enphase, it was this perilous time of like, what's happening with Enphase? And <laughs> I don't really know if I want to talk about the market right now, right? <laughs> um, and we're transparent here on Suncast. And I've looked for an opportunity to have you on the show because I consider you one of the market experts for Latin America and not just Latin America, but emerging markets and the thought process behind product introduction, company strategy for growing outside of a domestic market into a foreign market. And that could be a European company coming to America, could be an American company going to Japan. The fundamentals are the same. And so today we're going to explore a bit about the fallacies often found within the corporate context of how to go to market or how to expand to other markets. And if you're listening and you're not looking at Latin America, or you're not looking at Australia, 
that's fine because I bet you are growing your solar business in rural Illinois and you're wondering, you're wondering if Ohio is a market you should be in or you're growing your business in Virginia and you are desiring to get into the booming Illinois market in the United States, right? Or maybe you're a software developer in Australia and you really want to bring your product to the US. There are an underlying set of fundamental sort of thought processes for new product development and uh, and new business development that Luis through his time in telecom and, uh, or rather IT, and, and then uh, nine years at Enphase, uh, one of the very early guys selling Enphase. Small correction, it's almost eight years, not nine. Eight years, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, maybe it was a year of trying to figure out how to get an Enphase. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm going with this is, I'm going to posit for you, listener, that Luis is an expert on this uh, topic. He recently penned an article on LinkedIn, as I've been begging him to do, It's settled emerging markets are too small and other fallacies that aren't helping your business. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting when I when I put in the context that you could be simply looking to move from one state to the other in the United States. And a lot of folks look at Maryland right now and think, oh, it's too small. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding, companies like NextEra are buying projects left and right in Maryland at the utility scale. A lot of the principles play out exactly the same, whether you're moving from the U.S. to Mexico, from Mexico to Guatemala, from Australia to New Zealand or from Illinois to Virginia, whatever yeah. it is, right? So. so one of the things I love about the plethora of uh, wisdom that you've shared with me is the insight in the boardroom that you've given me about the way decisions were made at Enphase. Well, and, and mind you, I haven't just worked for Enphase all my life, right? I've mean, worked yeah. for many other companies and decisions are made almost exactly the same, Yeah. right? And, it, you know, there's a certain mindset and a certain way that you're trained at business school and a certain way to think about these problems. And on the surface, it's very logical, right? It's like, well, you know, this is what you do and this is what you do this and you do that. But the thing is, I didn't come from a business school background, right? I have a lot of business experience, whatever, but my training is really hands-on. Yeah. It's really just rolling up your sleeves and getting your uh, fingernails dirty, right, in some of these markets. So sometimes you need to marry what you learn in business school with what you actually see in the market and arrive at a perhaps completely different place than yeah. you would otherwise, right? Now, before we get too far down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. I have recently had to look up the definition of a word that was reintroduced to me at breakfast a few days ago by my friend Louise. And that word is iconoclast. For yeah. the uninitiated, help me understand what iconoclast means and give the listeners some context around why iconoclast might be relevant within the context of understanding Luis Morales. And I want you to go way back. You know okay. what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, well, to begin with, yes. right, iconoclast is not a word that I once tapped on my forehead and wear on my chest and tell everybody I'm an iconoclast, right? Because being an iconoclast is hard. It's hard because you're always swimming upstream. You're always challenging the status quo. And iconoclast is essentially somebody who, if you look up the definition, will bust images, yeah. will bust cherished beliefs. Exactly right. right. Attack so you beliefs. think you should do this, but this guy is telling you you're wrong. This is the way to do it, yeah. right? And these are cherished beliefs, right? What you learned in business school may not play out so well in reality, right? What you learned in, you know, whatever, you know, in Sunday school may not play out so well in some other context, right? So going back to the way back, right? Without getting into too many of the details and personal things, I come to a surprise of many, right? I uh, come from a very conservative religious upbringing, Mm -hmm. right? I was raised in a household that was extremely conservative, very religious, had belonged to a certain uh, religion that will remain unnamed. You don't want to talk uh, about it. I don't want to talk about (laughs) it. That's fine. Because I don't want to come across across as somebody attacking a particular religion, right? It's like what I found was after being in that particular frame, right, in that framework for worldview for many, many years, I wasn't, I wasn't very happy. Yeah, right? not just many, many years, but leadership positions. like Leadership yeah, positions. Really right? understanding fundamentally. It really understanding the, the, the doctrine, the core of the belief system and just yep. being in a position where mm. I would stand in front of thousands of people, yeah. thousands, not hundreds or tens, thousands yeah. of people 
and tell them why they should practice the religion more, you know, intensely right. or whatever, right? After doing that for many years, I found myself in a place I wasn't very happy, right? Mm. And I ended up leaving that religion that was 20 years ago, right? My conclusion was, you know, after a lot of soul searching is that if you don't take personal responsibility for your beliefs, for your actions, for how you live your life, but you delegate that to the wise man on the hill, the wise man in the boardroom, the wise man in the corner office, or the wise man, whoever they are, you're going to end up in a very unhappy place, mm. right? You're going to end up most likely unfulfilled. Yeah. So if your boss is telling you, no, that market will never take off, right? If you think that you have the data and the intuition that your boss may be wrong, you need to gather up the courage and go prove it, Yeah. right? And go dig up the data, go do the research and make a pitch for it. If you yeah. really believe that's where we should go. Yeah. And so I would like for you to share with us the tale of two islands. Oh, the tale of two islands. Okay. That kind of caught me by surprise a little bit. All right. So when I was, when I was at uh, my previous employer, right? Uh, Your the, previous employer was in phase. So you can say that. Yeah, thank you. So when I was at in phase, <laughs> uh, the company at some point in the, you know, between 2010 and 2000 and maybe 16 or 15 or so, was on a quest to find, you know, new markets for its great product. By the way, you mm. know, I continue to say that Enphase makes the best product of its class. It's just just far and above anything that's that's uh, in that space, right? right. So Enphase had been very, very successful in the U.S. At some point, it had close to 40% of that market, right? In the residential market, right? And it had dethroned you know, well-known players like SMA and Fronius and all the other ones, right? And now it set out to conquer Europe and to conquer different places in Europe. And it seemed, especially around 2012, I believe, that Japan was just that big shiny object that you got to go get, mm. right? This is right after the Fukushima yep. you know, disaster and how uh, they decided they were going to cut off their emphasis in nuclear and they were going to go renewable. And they started enacting uh, regulation to support renewable. And everybody, if you, if you were anybody who knew anything, you had to go to Japan, right? Mm. So I was the first person at Enphase who I got on a plane uh, with my management and set up some meetings and go talk to Japan, to the Japanese industry, solar industry. We talked to Sharp, we talked to Kyocera, we talked to Mitsubishi, we talked to all the ones that you need to be talking to over there, yeah. right? So after being in Japan for about 24 hours, I almost got on the plane and got back yeah. to the US, right? Because in my head, I knew that Enphase was gonna have a real hard time getting into Japan, right? Now, in spite of whatever the spreadsheet said, whatever the market report said, whatever the size of the market, the size of the population, the economics, the demographics, and all that, we were just not going to be a player in Japan, at least not in the short term. It was going to be a big haul, right? right? Why is that? Well, I knew certain things about Enphase at the time. Things have changed since, by the way. The new management has done a great job of streamlining many things. Yeah. But at the time, the company was busy with many engineering projects. Yeah, so distracted engineering team. Well, I, you know, I, I really don't want to say anything. As a business development person, as for a the business things that you needed to accomplish to enter a new market, right? did you have an engineering team that had the focus They on... just didn't have the bandwidth. I mean, they were a brilliant engineering team. They, Correct. They were just tasked with 25 yeah. Yeah, I don't want projects. don't that's right. right. Yeah. They were tasked with 25 or 250 projects yeah. when they really could only do about 10 or 15 yeah. really well, right? Yeah. And going into Japan was was just a huge engineering problem. It was problem. effectively going to require a new product. It almost required a brand new product. Right. It required completely new certifications, right. completely new documentation, completely mm -hmm. new training, completely new everything, right? It would extend you, time to market by It would months? extend at least three years. Wow. At least three years. And by the way, it, I mean, that was more than three years ago. And right. phase, to my knowledge, is still not a player in Japan. It still hasn't right? sold any. Yeah. It, uh, to my knowledge, they haven't sold a single microwave in Japan, right? And not for lack of trying, right. and not for lack of investing, and yeah. not for lack of, you know, trips to Japan, right? Sure. On the other hand, right, roll the clock forward a few years, right, and you look at Puerto Rico, right? Now, look at Puerto Rico in 2000 and, I guess, 10, 14, 11? maybe, you know, maybe 14 or 15. Okay. And it was just nothing, right? It was just, it wasn't in any marketing report. Oh, I'd say like 13. 
13. Yeah. I mean, there was a few scattered. Uh, it was like know, the convention center five megawatt project and that was it. Yeah. But also remember I was in distributed generation. I wasn't That's even right. looking at the five megawatt projects. I was looking at people who were installing rooftops, yeah. either commercial or residential. Yeah. Right? I think and, even Barbados had more than. Oh, Puerto the Rico. U.S. Virgin Islands had 10 times as much as right. Puerto Rico. The U.S. VI, right? Which yep. is, you Just know, tiny. as you know, it's a speck mm. of dust in the Caribbean, right? Yep. But I go to Puerto Rico and. I realized there's two or three installers. And at the time, there wasn't a whole lot going on there, mm-hmm. right? But roll the clock forward to 2000, I want to say 14 or so. Yeah. And Sonova gets the idea that they can sell, they can finance solar systems, residential solar systems in right. Puerto Rico, right? Now, at the time, Sonova wasn't as big as it is today. Uh, it was one residential player. That market went from just maybe... F- maybe two megawatts of solar, maybe three megawatts of residential solar a year to 20 times as much in the course of 18 months or so, right? Yeah. So I say, I think Puerto Rico is an opportunity that we should go pay attention to, right? And of course, what's the reaction you get in 2013, 14, 15 about Puerto Rico? Oh, they're broke. Oh, you know, their utilities in shambles. Oh, they're the grease of the America, whatever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's like there was no shortage of CNN headlines that were negative about Puerto Rico. And the company initially was very dismissive about Puerto Rico and where it should go. Well, it turns out we ended up doing some really good business in Puerto Rico for the last three or four years until the hurricanes hit a year ago. So you, there you have a tale of two islands, right? Yeah. So here you have one very well-characterized market that everybody's rushing to Mm. and where you know, knowing your product, your company, your engineering team, the resources required, you're not going to be able to sell a whole lot. And here's another one where this is not a place where you need a new certification, a new product, a new documentation. Everything that you have, just pull it out of the box and sell it there and you'll sell. Yeah, and that notwithstanding, help me look into the boardroom around the sentiment Based on conventional wisdom and expectations, what was the conventional wisdom? The, convention, of, the conventional wisdom, a company like Enphase, again, I want to couch it on a company like Enphase. Sure, right? I mean, there's many it companies, there's, it, it happens everywhere, right? And I, I, I in fact, uh, Enphase ended up being very successful in Latin America because we have some people in the boardroom who are very supportive of Latin America. So yeah. to its credit, I mean, in spite of all of its, you know, hesitations, Enphase ended up really supporting Latin America eventually, right? But the initial steps into that market were painful. So the thinking, I kind of allude to that in my article, this thinking kind of goes like this, well, wait a second, we we went to market A and market B and market C, we got some data here that says that in the first year you get this much share and Mm -hmm. the second year you get this much and the third year you get this much share. So, oh, you're only going to be able to sell these many microverters in three years. Right. That doesn't support any OPEX. It doesn't support any expenditures to go into that market, right? Compound that by the fact that a place like Puerto Rico had zero marketing attention at the time. Right. And in fact, as late as 2017, IHS listed Puerto Rico as zero residential megawatts. Yeah. Right, meaning they hadn't calculated that there were any installed. There was no installs, right? and, right? and we'll go and we'll go back to like 2013, 2014 GTM reports where Puerto Rico didn't even show up the, on the, the radar. The problem Puerto Rico is that Puerto Rico, up until recently, was in limbo. Yeah. Like the Latin American reports thought it was a U.S. A US uh, yeah. you know report. The U.S. reports thought it was Latin American report. Right. Whatever it was, it was nowhere to be found, right? Yeah. So you would find GTN reports that had essentially no data for Puerto Rico. Yeah. IHS reports that literally had one or two megawatts for Puerto Rico yeah. uh, as late as 2017, yeah. right? And and you get off the plane and you go there and you say, Puerto Rico at some point in 2017, I think we calculated the market size to be somewhere around... 35 megawatts of residential uh-huh. alone, right? This is not counting small commercial or any yep. utility that was ever This is built. 2017. 2017. Uh-huh. This is recent. This is yep. yesterday. And you had effectively captured how much of that? <laughs> well, at one point we captured 110% of that market. Yeah. 110%. Yeah, that's right? a lot and of failures. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not like that. No, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek because what happened is we had calculated the market share to be about 30 plus megawatts. 
and we thought Q1 was this mania, this mania. And in Q3, we had one partner just blew up. This yeah. just exploded. They installed way more than our projections. Yeah. And when we calculated how much we had installed, we installed more than we thought the market the market size was. So right. we actually had like 110% of the market. Obviously, the market was bigger than we thought, right? right? Yeah. So it just goes to say that the market was way bigger than anybody of us expected it to yeah. be. Right? That's phenomenal. You know, it's easy to, within the context of being in a company like Enphase, get a bit myopic. And I'm going to use Enphase continually in this interview because I feel like it was not a special case, right? Enphase Mm -hmm. could have been any company. It was SunEdison. It was SolarCity. In fact, it was every company. Yeah. I used to joke, right, that if you you went to a solar conference in Latin America, anywhere in Latin America, from Aruba Mm -hmm. to Mexico to Chile Uh, to whatever, you might as well be in solar conference in Spain. That's right. Because all the accents were Spanish. Yeah. Like, is this is right after the bust of the Spanish, you know, regulation in 2012 yeah. or 13, yeah. and all the Spanish EPCs and developers are essentially trying to find new markets for their expertise. And you would find almost zero American accents or zero Americans doing yeah. business in Latin America. Up until recently, I mean, there may be a few more now, but I mean, Enphase is where I worked, but I could see that this is happening in the whole industry. In fact... Because I could see that this was happening in the whole industry, this is why I knew I would be successful at Enphase in Latin America. Because I knew I was fighting exactly the same battles that my friends at SMA and mm-hmm. Solar Edge and Fronius were fighting and Keiko and all the oh, other and guys. We all, and at the conferences, we all sat around having whiskey talking about it. It wasn't yeah. a secret. Yeah. So when you went into Mexico to circa 2012, 2013, when I was mm-hmm. going in with, with Trina, perhaps help us understand the market dynamics that you identified that perhaps were not readily apparent and for which you said, hmm, I think we have a unique approach and this yeah. could, it, it benefits our feature set for Enphase particularly. Help me understand how you looked through that lens for your product interest yeah. in Mexico, yeah. the battles so, that you fought even in internally to try and gain acceptance of that opportunity. Around 2012 or so, when uh, there was SBI, I believe in Orlando, we were approached by a number of small EPCs and distributors or, or uh, majoristas in Mexico who wanted to carry the Enphase product, mm-hmm. right? This is at a time when, again, Enphase was really trying to find new markets for its product and, you know, making inroads into Europe and thinking about Japan and all that, right? And here's all these, I'm the guy who speaks Spanish and I'm the guy who with a Spanish name and last name. And, and I was not at all involved in Latin America at the time. In fact, up until Enphase, I had never sold a screwdriver in Latin America, right? It's not like I was, a, like Enphase acquired this Latin American sage to, to come join it, or not at all, right? So I go to, uh, to the conference, I talk to a bunch of EPCs and distributors, and they seem very enthusiastic about the solar industry in Mexico, right? So lesson number one, listen to your customer, yeah. right? Listen to the customer. If the customer is enthusiastic about a certain you know, business or product they want to go into, don't just say blindly, okay, uh, we'll do it, but at least pay attention. Don't dismiss it off, uh, you know, off the cuff because they may have something that you don't know, right? Yeah. Now, being that the solar industry is so new and, 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 and is just growing and maturing, you can't expect to have accurate market data for every market that there is, right? There may be a, a sort of revolution going on in Guyana right now that we don't know about, right? right. And I can tell you that IHS is not going to be covering Guyana, yeah. right? So because of my experience at the time and what I'd seen in Japan and what I'd seen in other markets, in Europe in particular, I knew that the realities on the ground were likely to be different than anything you could see in a marketing report, right? Because at the time, Mexico was not being covered by even GTM, who was a pioneer in that space, right? So, you know, with my company's management, you know, blessing, I took a trip to Mexico. I visited four or five different EPCs and distributors, and I came back with a distinct impression that this was not a hobbyist business. This Mm. is not a bunch of tree huggers trying to put up solar in some remote farm or hacienda or something like that. This is like people with... How long had Powerstein, for example, been in? Powerstein had been in the business already for a couple of years, right? So one of my first visits in Mexico was Powerstein and the next one was Sharp. Mm. And the next one was ERDC in Querétaro, right? And uh, these were not companies that were toying around with the idea of going solar and had put up just like a single panel in someone's house. They had already done hundreds of kilowatts, maybe megawatts of solar in the previous years. And they had 
trucks with big logos and they had crews mm. with uniforms and they had offices that, that looked very nice. Going, this isn't a bunch of people who are just kind of toying with this idea, right? So what's going on in this market? Why isn't anybody paying attention to this, right? This is no different than what I saw six months ago in, I know, in some place in Europe, yeah. right? So perhaps not to the same scale, obviously, but these are professionals. These are people who are taking this thing very, very seriously. They have business plans and they're like serious about it, right? So I came back and I said, well, that's not enough to put together a business plan for anybody, right? I got a bunch of really enthusiastic Mexicans trying to put solar on roofs, right? So, okay, so let me understand, is there any supporting regulation, right? That supports, oh, okay. started looking into that, voila, right? I mean, Mexico had essentially the same net metering regulation that the U.S. had for about the same number of years. Right. Since 2007, I believe, mm -hmm. right? You go, wow, you know, this market is, is a legitimate market. I mean, at least has some legitimate underpinnings. Why isn't it bigger? Well, you know, it, the economics are a little bit different, right? But there was something that was different about the Mexican market that, that at least we hadn't paid attention to. And it is Mexico had this tiered rate system, the electrical, electricity, you know, tariff system, where in the residential space, if you were in the DAC, yeah. the DAC uh, tariff, yep. you pay through the roof. Yeah, right? like 35, 40 cents. It's more. expensive. No, more like 25 or so okay. right at the time. So like tier four, getting into tier five in California. Yeah. And then what happens is if only you put up maybe two or three solar panels worth of uh, of solar on your roof, right. all of a sudden you get off that tar uh, DAC tier and down to some place where it's like less than half. Right. Like it's like plummets maybe- Plummets to low teens. It just, it just plummets, right? Yep. So that's what people were doing. Yeah. They were just putting up two, three solar panels. And it turns out four. it's hard to put three solar panels on a t traditional string inverter. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. And I'm going, oh my God, this market is perfect for Enphase. I mean, there's nothing better for Enphase than a small system, right? especially at the time. And I go, okay, well, so it sounds like there's a really good product fit here. There's market underpinnings, right? right? And what is happening, I started realizing that the panel prices had just begun just to, to, fall. to yeah. avalanche, mm -hmm. right? And around 2010, 2011, right. around 2012, well, now people can afford this stuff. So you do some simple math, right? And you say, okay, what is the average household income of a U.S. household? At the time, it was somewhere around $45,000, if I remember, right? Whereas the average household income in Mexico was like $3,000. Okay, right. okay, scrap that. <laughs> Let's not care about, you know, the people who are down poor, right. right? Let's just talk about the people who are in the DAC rate. Right. Well, the average household income of those people are maybe one half of the U.S. household, mm -hmm. right? Okay, and what is the average electricity price that we're paying? Two or three times the average electricity price here in the US. Mm. Do the math, right? Three times two, six. If your electric bill was six times as high as it is today, would you be looking for a solution? Yeah, absolutely. Right? If you were paying $600, $800 a month for your electricity, and somebody said, here, invest a couple $10,000 in right. uh, and get rid of that bill, would you do something about right. it? Right? Yeah. You bet you would, Yeah. right? And uh, that's exactly what's happening in Mexico, right? And I was able to see that. Well, you know, let's not, you know, just take all the credit. I mean, my customers informed me of that, right. right? I gathered the data. I looked at the data. I looked at the realities on the ground. And I said, this is the market that is perfect for Enphase, right. right? It's just small systems, high electricity prices, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So right? it must have been easy for you at that point. You've shown the, the need in the market to go back to the boardroom and ask for help with your mayoristas, right? Credit for your customers and... This is how you see it was, <laughs> right? Our CEO at the time was very, very supportive. He was very intrigued by it initially, right? Uh, we had gone through a lot of stumbles in other markets and we certainly didn't want to stumble again into another market, but he was initially very supportive and at least very intrigued. But we had the other spectrum of the reactions in the boardroom of people saying, do you even have electricity in Mexico? I mean, to that level. I mean, exact words. You know, exact words out of someone's wow. mouth, right? It's like, what are you doing in Mexico? Do they even have electricity, right? Wow. So he may have been half joking or something, but I mean, you could infer exactly what that means. It's like, sure. is it worth really going in yep. there? Right? Little xenophobia. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to put thoughts into people's heads. I don't want to say what exactly sure. is happening in someone's mind, but I so mean- So again, you come back, you've got customers, you've got this clear market case where 
the relative parity is someone paying the equivalent of six times what they would pay in, in right. uh, for electricity in the United States. You've got Pyrostein, Connor Mex, lots of companies existing yeah. already in Mexico saying, "Can we please? We want we want it now." Why do you want my product? Don't yeah. you have SMA? Don't you have right. Fronius? Uh -huh. Right? Don't you have Sorejo? Don't you have something uh -huh. else? No, no. We want your product because of this. Uh -huh. What is this? Well, we want small systems because of the DAC rate system, right. and we want to be bringing that with you. Oh, that's what you're doing. Right? Got it. So yeah. you loaded them up with uh, with orders, and they were they were good paying. Uh, no, customers. well, again, I mean, going into emerging markets for anybody who's uh, who's uh, got the idea in their heads that they want to go into an emerging market, you need to realize that this is going to be you swimming upstream for a long time. There's going to be the initial business case that you yeah. have to put up, and the initial business case that people will have to buy into, right? And then there'll be all the other details, right? For example, your a channel strategy, the channel strategy that Enphase pursued in the U.S. was very well structured. It was very well thought out for very large distributors. Right. Right. Distributors that had fairly good IT systems where they had, you know, clear reports of what they sold, who they sold it to, et cetera. You can't take that channel strategy and just cookie cut it and put it into Mexico because distributors are just not that big. Yeah. And you can't expect you know, certain things out of distributor that you would expect in some other markets. So you have to adapt the channel strategy and we had to do that. And that was a struggle, right? Because yeah. your internal accounting systems and IT systems are all geared for a certain way of doing business yeah. in the US. For extending credit in emerging markets is challenging, yeah. right? Is If you go to uh, to the US, you have a DMB report, you have a mm -hmm. Moody, you have uh, ways that to to measure credit risk it's harder to do in Mexico, right? Yeah. So the initial reactions by some of the people are going, just like we, we would be crazy to take a credit risk on some, you know, small distributor in Mexico, yeah. right? Uh, how much credit do you want? You're crazy. You're not going to yeah. do that, right? Yeah, zero credit. <laughs> zero credit, right? Of course, you can't transact business on zero credit, right? At one point, I had a conversation with somebody who made decisions on credit at the company, and if you're listening to this episode, you know who you are, and eventually you turn into a good guy, so you're good. <laughs> but uh, you were very supportive. But the first reaction was, we will extend zero credit to Mexico. Ever. Ever. And, and get off that, you yeah. know, get off that. Don't word. ask me again. Don't ask me again. <laughs> Just go, go bother somebody else, yeah. right? Because we have no way of assessing this, and there's nobody that I know of that will give me trade credit insurance, yeah. right? So if you have no trade credit insurance and no credit rating, you know, they will kill me the moment yeah. this debt goes bad, right? But what happens is there's many ways to, I mean, I can tell you there's many ways to manage that problem and that difficulty. Mm. And there's, there's ways to manage problems and difficulties, right? At the end of the day, the U.S. top two trading partners are Canada and Mexico, yeah. right? The trade balance with Mexico at the time was something like uh, $800 billion. It's right. some astronomical numbers. Don't tell me that all of that business is being transacted on a cash, on cash. basis, yeah. right? There's gotta be credit in there somewhere. There's gotta be a way to extend credit into Mexico, yeah. right? And uh, so for example, we did things like, if you become a very strategic partner of one of your distributors where your product is their number one selling product, they may not pay the battle manufacturer, but they're gonna pay you. Right. Because the day you cut off that uh, that supply, they're out of business, yeah. right? So you need to understand also how strategic you are to their business. To their business, right. right? And you need to put on, put together mechanisms and, and, and ways to ensure that, you know, there's carrots and sticks on, on every one of these relationships, right? Hey, Warrior, have you ever designed a system right in front of a customer? Now, for some of you sales folks, that might sound crazy, but for some solar developers, it's crazy genius. In a traditional sales meeting, you show up with a presentation and numbers and that sets up a subtly adversarial relationship where you're trying to convince the customer of the validity of your numbers and the value of the system that you've created for them. With Helioscope's intuitive design software, some savvy sales teams are flipping that script. Instead of showing up with a presentation, you're showing up with a list of questions. And only when you get to know the customer, understand their priorities, constraints, etc., do you then design a system right in front of them, often with the customer looking over your shoulder every step of the way. That's when a certain magic happens. The customer now owns the system. And with Helioscope's new proposal tool, you can actually design, pitch, and close in one meeting. 
Give it a try and transform your sales process. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. As a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days for a 60-day free trial with Helioscope. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. Does your current asset management software provider call just to check in? If you're already using PowerHub, well, I know your answer is yes. See, when you're using PowerHub's asset management software, your customer success specialist is your guide and advocate. PowerHub's not just a software provider, they're a partner for your growth. And their seasoned customer success team is known throughout the industry for helping developers spot and address core business inefficiencies. They have the largest customer success team in the industry for a reason, so that your business grows, not just bigger, but better, with PowerHub in your corner. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. It's worth noting that there is a first mover advantage that can't be calculated. It can't be easily calculated in a business plan. And here's a thing you'll understand if you do business in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Latin America is is a it, it runs and is a culture of trust. Yeah. It's a culture of relationships. Mm-hmm. It's a culture of trust. Yep. Right. And there is I could get I could have a whole hour podcast on why Latin America is a culture of trust. Yeah. Right. But the moment you establish yourself as a trusted provider of a certain product, you have almost an unmovable advantage, almost an unassailable advantage over your competitors, right? The obstacle to move from your tried and true and proven advantage, uh, product to somebody else, it doesn't matter yeah. where they come from, they're German, Americans, or Israeli, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? At the moment that you, that you establish yourselves as that trusted partner, they're not moving away. That's right, At least yeah. not easily. Not for a while. No, not easily. Yeah, yeah. And again, there are cultural reasons, but there's also economic reasons, and there's also mindset reasons for this that go well beyond just you know your pretty face and how many times you take them out yeah. to dinner, right? We were talking in the WhatsApp group around just this again a fallacy that one must be opportunistic, and you name it in the t- in the title of the article because these markets are too small. Mm-hmm. Folks look at it and say, oh, it's it's too small, so I'm opportunistic. Uh, I mean, I'll you know there are many markets in Caribbean. In fact, the Caribbean. As a as an entire region, most folks just couch it as opportunistic. If an opportunity if if an opportunity comes my way, I'll take a look at it. But I'm not going to have I'm not going to put resources there. I'm certainly not going to have someone whose job is to sell into the Caribbean. So, you know, you got to look at every company's business and every company's market and product. And and for some companies, it might make sense to make Latin America or the Caribbean opportunistic and make Japan strategic. Right. I mean, right. every company has its strengths and, and weaknesses and every company has different products that they sell. Tesla, for example, they sell cars and a car is a very different thing than the inverter. Oh, yeah. Right. They may legitimately have a much bigger market in Japan than they would in some other place. Right. But the first mistake you can make when considering an emerging market is to think that it is too small. Mm. Right. Because, again, going back to the article, too small just means that you don't think you can get enough share of that market to justify. Now, how are you calculating your share assumptions? Right. Right? What makes you believe that you can only get X amount of share, right? In Puerto Rico, at one point, we had 110% share of that market, <laughs> right? Know. And to be serious about it, we actually had uh, an average in that market, we had close to 75% share, maybe 80% share, yeah. right? Think about that. Who has 80% share of anything? So once you have 80% share of a market, yeah. you know, essentially you multiply that market, the size of the market for you is like three or four times as big right. as it would be anywhere, right? Yeah. But the second mistake you can make in going into an emerging market is to, if you decide to go there, right, is to be opportunistic, mm-hmm. right? And to just sell there for a few months and then just kind of turn off the tap and go yeah. somewhere else because uh, there's another shiny object somewhere, right? Latin America doesn't react well to that, right? We've had far too many opportunistic endeavors uh, going on in our markets. And the market reacts positively to loyalty and to commitment and very negatively to opportunism. But being opportunistic means is, you know, I had this conversation with somebody in the Caribbean one Mm. time, right? And uh, uh, it was in the island of Aruba. Aruba, as you may know, uh, was a pirate port for Mm -hmm. like, couple hundred years in yeah. the 17, 18th uh, century. This EPC told me, you know what? We look at all these suppliers and all these people coming in here for conferences, a bunch of pirates, 
right? Is like, what do you mean pirates? Yeah, they just get off the ship, they sell everything they have, and they get back in the ship and they go home, right? So the market needs support, right? And once you sell an inverter there, you yeah. need to be able to support it for a number of years, right? Yeah. If you hope to continue to do business there. So are these markets too small? Should you be opportunistic about them? Well, that's for you to decide, right? Yeah. That's for your company to decide and do its own math, right? But if you decide to go into these markets, chances are you're going to become a leader because mm-hmm. none of your competitors are investing in that market. Right. And if you become a leader, it should be worth it to you to remain a leader. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is to treat it as a, as a strategic market. Yeah, to be committed right? And, uh, right. rather than If you're going to treat it as an opportunistic market where like, you know, I sell you what I have today, but if you need something special, go, yeah. you know, go find something else, then you're not going to be a leader for a long time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, to be opportunistic also expresses a level a level of hubris that regional players can't afford to have, right? Correct. Um, regional meaning those local, in the market. Local yeah, those players. local players, yeah. exactly. For those who aren't familiar, I mean, Luis and I are good friends, and every time I'm in Florida, as I am now, we try to get together and any pretty much any trade show, we try to get together for a good vegan breakfast. <laughs> and uh, yeah. another another way that he's an iconoclast, although in, in certain circles of the of the solar industry, veganism isn't considered uh, all that not anymore. Different, right? not, not anymore. anymore that's not right. anymore. So uh, I know that you. So as I was saying, I, I know that you are a deep thinker. You, as much as anyone, uh, or more than most in my world, uh, challenge me to think differently. So I want to hear your thoughts on some of these topics that you hear week in and week out on yeah. Suncast. You're very familiar with the format. For those who are new, we'll talk about a specific market or topic for 30 to 60 seconds and mm-hmm. hear your thoughts on whether or not you think it's hot or hype and why. So we'll start with microgrids. A lot of companies are investing a lot of money and time and R&D in microgrids and Face being one of those companies, mm-hmm. by the way. And, and uh, back to my orange blood, I mean, I think they have a great story on that. Now, will microgrids be the way of uh, of the future in the near future. Well, you look at Puerto Rico, for example, it has it proposed that uh, to split this grid into eight microgrids, yeah. right? So I would say it's hot, but not as hot as it's going to be in a couple of years, right? right? It's If you think you're going to make a million dollars today selling microgrids in Illinois, you probably aren't, yeah. right? But it definitely is a place where all of us should be involved and watch closely, I think, mm-hmm. in a couple of years, five years, who knows? In the short term, it'll become a much hotter topic. A market that clearly is near and dear to your heart. When I started this podcast, I said uh, the I stated the statistic from Adam James that Latin America was the fastest growing solar market mm-hmm. in the world. It has in between then and now a tepid response to different dynamics in the solar industry and local dynamics with regard to sort of energy reform and politics in mm-hmm. various countries. I would love to hear your thoughts. And I'm going to just sort of paint a broad brush and let you pick and choose. And if you don't pick the ones I want you to choose, I'll come back to them. But your thoughts on whether or not LATAM, LATAM continues to be hot or hype. You may read in between the lines as, is LATAM worth going into or not? Yeah, I think it definitely is mm-hmm. worth going into, yep. right? I think there's much more opportunity in LATAM than people think. And, mm-hmm. and even outside of the key markets where people think all the action is like Mexico and mm-hmm. Brazil. So Colombia is is definitely a market that is hot and getting hotter. Yeah. But there's other markets that are like flying under the radar as we speak, right? Mm. There's markets in Central America that are getting hotter. There are markets in the Caribbean that are Caribbean that are getting hotter. Any that you particularly want to highlight? Not specifically. Okay. Uh, but uh, I would say that Puerto Rico is a very hot market. Yeah. It, it, it was is hot and getting hotter. Yeah. Right. Uh, with time, it, with storage and sure. uh, is. Latin America is still a hot market, right? I think it depends a little bit on the segment yeah. that, that you're playing in. So if you're looking for a hot market for storage, maybe Puerto Rico, yeah. right? But you're not going to find uh, Mexico to be a hot market for storage, uh, depending on what you're selling. Although the storage uh, regulations were just announced yesterday. That's right. That's right. So I, I, need, so, a, I need to get up to speed on that. Yeah. And, uh, and perhaps it's hotter than I thought. Yeah, but and, I, and if he's listening, thanks, Gabe Goffman, for sharing that I with know. our, with so, our uh, WhatsApp tribe. So 24 tribe. hours ago, I wouldn't, have been, <laughs> I wouldn't have been excited about Mexico. And, yeah. and I still haven't read on the new article and, and report, right? So if you're going to be selling storage in Brazil, I would have my hesitations, right? If you're going to be selling distributed generation in Brazil or Mexico or the Caribbean, I think it's as hot as it gets, right? Yeah. If you're selling utility in Mexico, I think it's still hot, right? But there have been some moves by the recent by the recent moves by the administration yeah. that kind of you know makes you 
wonder what's going on in his head, right? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I don't think it's hot at all. But that's a yeah, yeah. I think that it's I think that it's him wrenching right now. Utility scale in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So so again, that's not a topic where I'm as expert as other people because uh -huh. I never sold a whole sure. lot in utility. It makes you wonder what's going on in his head, in Amlo's head, right? Uh, with respect to uh, to large scale it does, solar. It does. Yeah. You know, one of the markets that surprises me year in and year out is the DG market in Chile. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly if you include the PMGD market, which, you know, just kind of sort of came on the scene yeah. and, and exploded. If you aren't, uh, you have to have a very specific focus yeah. on that market. The developers I know who are not, mm -hmm. for example, who are not Chilean or Spanish who have relocated to Chile mm -hmm. are only focused on Chile, mm -hmm. right? They basically said, they basically said, this is where we're going to stand our flag. Mm -hmm. Same in Argentina, right? Mm -hmm. Like I know very few Argentine uh, project developers who are also successfully operating outside of Argentina yeah. as, a, as a home base, mm -hmm. right? Because they, and they chose that market back to what we alluded to in the, in the opportunistic versus committed, mm -hmm. right? I think that would be an interesting study as well. The success rate of folks who tried to be everywhere at once mm -hmm. versus picking one specific market. You know, our friend Camilo has very, um, I don't think he would mind me saying this, he's very statistically analyzed, look at, at Latin America, and without naming which country he's in, he moved to, the, to that country. He mm -hmm. moved from yeah. San Diego to, to that Latin country. America. He moved the whole relocated family, his family you know, to- rent an yeah. apartment and exactly. he's there. That's commitment, Yes, right? I mean, that That's is, right. when people say, when people see that you are there, you're there every week and you're shaking hands and you're talking- Completely. It's like you're committed to this. Yeah. You're not going to just kind of set me up with a bunch of hardware and then yeah. go, right? Yeah. yeah. And it brings, actually brings up another point that I'd like to, I probably should pen an article on, and that is hire local mm -hmm. or sort of work remote, right? Yeah. I've worked on a bunch of teams that have tried to work Mexico remote. Yeah. And you look at companies like Enphase mm -hmm. and Jinko. Mm-hmm who have dominated mm -hmm. the Mexican market by hiring very smart local teams, mm -hmm. very committed, smart local teams. Yep. That's the other thing about go-to-market. And, and again, going back to the to the competitive advantage of being first to market, you get to pick the best That's people. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And often recruit them from non-solar businesses. From non-solar businesses. Yeah, you're teaching I mean, them in the business. I, I can tell you that at Enphase, we had the best engineer, the best salesperson, the best ops person, the best marketing person, the best everything. Yep. Hats that our competitors were always trying to poach, yep. right? Yep. And as a and as a manager, you now get the privilege mm -hmm. of watching those guys become oh. leaders in our industry. Oh my goodness, yeah, that is that is, that is again a topic for a whole other podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, the growth that I saw in some of these guys and girls, yeah, it's just it's just it, it makes the whole thing worth it. Totally. Even if I never made a penny in Mexico, it makes it worth it to me. Yeah. Now yeah. you told me a very endearing story about one of your previous employees coming to you and asking for advice for which job to take of a bunch of good jobs. Right, exactly. Right? All right, moving on in hot or hype. Hot or hype blockchain as it relates to energy. Short answer is I don't know enough. Longer answer, slightly longer answer is it probably is hotter than people think for certain specific applications. For example, this thing that the South African uh, outfit is doing about monetizing their solar assets using a blockchain technology and getting around the exchange rate, right? All right, uh, the, the forex, Avery, yeah, Avery forex. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is brilliant, right? So, one of the really difficult things for any company investing or financing projects in Latin America is is for, forex, right? Yeah. So, if blockchain can help you get around forex, right? Uh, perhaps that's just great, right? That's yeah. just brilliant. But again, I don't know enough. I don't know enough mm. to say. What position do you hold that's controversial in the industry? Well, I, I have a tagline right, uh, that I use uh, with my friends, uh, kind of half jokingly, it is that our kids will be vegan, Yeah. right? So the impact of energy and the environment, as we all know and, and have been preaching for a long time, is, is very, very high. Yeah. But the impact of our diets and what we choose to eat, yeah. you know, and what, you know, where that food comes from is equally or higher yeah. on the environment than what panels would put on the roof. So again, going off script a little bit here, I've been a bit of an iconoclast. If, if somebody said that if you can't really be serious about the environment, if you're not a vegan, I don't know, I wouldn't go that far, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, our kids will be vegan. There's no other way. This, this country cannot run uh, the way, that this world cannot run the way it's running today on animal. Yeah, it's interesting. This is an, another topic that I think would be fun to riff on. I hear a lot, the idea, oh, w even if we went 100% renewables, 
Mm-hmm. I'm going somewhere with this, but even if we went 100 percent renewables in the United States, we're still only 10 percent of the world economy. If we reduce our greenhouse gases, you still have to worry about bad actors like China and India, mm-hmm. which which a is a, is false equivalence, and b mm-hmm. is poor responsibility and mm-hmm. being and being a good uh, global citizen. Because we can also point to the fact that India and China are growing their renewables as a percentage of the portfolio faster than we are. Faster than we are. China is like 40x the amount of um, not just Mm -hmm. renewables deployed, but electric vehicles deployed. uh, And research dollars deployed for energy storage, which is an area where we are woefully underfunding right now. But the scarier statistic, and I wish I had the numbers in front of me, is the amount of land being Mm -hmm. acquired by China in non-Chinese locations, Mm -hmm. Central America and Southeast Asia principally, Mm -hmm. for the purpose of cattle farming. Exactly right. So that they can bring meat back to their culture. Despite the China study, by the way, but so they can bring meat, so that they can have the perception, so that they can have, live the reality of the quote, developed world of being able to have steak. Yep. Being able to have hamburger, right? Yep. Being mm-hmm. able to have all these things that are associated with a life of comfort and luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The protein required. Whole, whole other topic, but I think that those of us who continue to eat meat in 20 or 50 years will be doing so from Petri dishes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, or, or it'll be like the person who owns a horse today, right? I mean, you, obviously you don't walk around a horse, but you love horses and, right. and you have one and you pay $100,000 for your you yeah. know, stallion and yep. And you're wealthy and you can do that. It's likely to be a luxury in the coming decades. We often talk about our collective reading habits. What book are you reading lately? And I'd also love to know what book you would recommend yeah. to, or what, what, what you may have recommended to Rafa when you were training him up in huh. days. Or... There's a number of books. Uh, for example, if you're, what number I may have recommended to, uh, to my team members, I recommended a book to him that I'm sure broke his heart. Mm-hmm. And it's called Start With No by, I think it's Camp, last name was Camp, right? This is a a book that every salesperson should read, but not necessarily turn into a religion, right? I've seen people turn this book and its negotiation tactics into religion and and anything taken to an extreme uh, becomes a problem. But this book, Start With No, essentially breaks the icon, right? A kind of classic, it it just busts the idea that you should always try to get to yes. No, you should start, you should get, your, the other part to say no before they say yes, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a certain logic to it. You should realize that those suppliers that that earn the yearly award for best supplier and, you know, the best buddy that we have and stuff like that, our chances are leaving a lot of money on the table, right? So that's that's a business book that I recommend to anybody who's in, in sales, right? I, I want to just point mm-hmm. out that this book really aligns actually with, very much with the book I often recommend the most, as you well know, mm-hmm. is um, Never Split the Difference. Never Split the Difference. And That's what right. they're both arguing mm-hmm. is that win-win is a failed strategy. That's it's, right. it's, it's the sales equivalent to false equivalence. It's that not everyone deserves to have the right, the same amount of skin in the, or, or, or weight in the argument based on value of argument alone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so you know, again, you, none of these books should be taken as religion, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, all these books need to be taken for what they are. They're good, you know, strategic thinking books, right? Now, but that wouldn't be the first business book that I would recommend to okay. somebody, right? I mean, there's many other books like uh, Zero to One as a fantastic, fantastic. book, yeah. right? Good to Great, that's a, that's a classic in this industry, right? There's another book that's a little bit off the mainstream here that I would recommend as well. It's called Mindset, Oh yeah, um, you know that uh, that book really. If you have young children, you know it helps you understand how you know what things to encourage, encouraging them and what have things. Have we are talked not. about this book? I, I don't. I don't think I, I, like... I may have heard about it in your podcast as well, but it actually goes into corporate culture as well. This is in my top three. Like, is I'm, that right? Yeah, it yeah. is. So it it also goes. It has a whole chapter in corporate culture, right? And you can see essentially pictures of your favorite or least favorite uh, corporate leader in some of these chapters, some of these pages, right? I think it can help you uh, build a positive culture in your company and your group, right? What kinds of things should be or should be encouraged or discouraged, right? There's another book that I would recommend. I read a lot of books that have nothing to do with business. Books that I recommend is uh, Why Nations Fail. That's a big, thick book and it's just very academic, but it's just an incre- it's, it's an iconoclastic book, right? You know, why do you think some nations succeed and why some nations fail? Obviously, coming from where I come from, 
I'm very interested in the topic, right? Why, you know, you have this country over here turn into the black hole of the Americas and you have this other country over here turn into, you know, the wealthiest country that uh, humanity has ever seen, right? So, um, anyway, that's... This is by uh, Darren As As Asimoglu? That's the, that's the guy. He has kind of a funny last, last name. I don't know. I think he... I don't know. A Akemoglu. I don't Asimoglu, know. I guess. Asimoglu and James Robinson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, I'll link to all of these in the, the show notes, notes always. Yeah. Please go check them out. Be a reader because readers are leaders and leaders are readers. Yeah. yeah, The Origins of Power, Prosperity, and Poverty. This is a book that's been recommended a few times. I'm going to have to go get a copy of yeah. this book. And if you're interested in the topics of veganism, you know, nutrition and the whole thing, you know, I, one book that I give away quite a bit is uh, Finding Ultra by Rich Roll. Then there oh, is, uh, yeah. Then there is uh, The China Study and there's a bunch of other ones like that. All right. Not that I want to recommend more podcasts for people to go listen to. And I wish that I had Louise to thank for this, but I don't have Steve Broyles, another faithful listener and good friend of mine, to thank for finding Rich Roll myself. And I listen to that podcast. He's inspired me yeah. in so many ways, from from diet to mindset around running. Yeah. And and those of you who listen know that I'm an avid runner. I have a commitment to run that I'll tell you about later. And maybe I'll share on the podcast at some point soon, but yep. I have a pretty audacious commitment to running right now. So as we round third base here, I want to ask you the final two questions and I want to give folks a chance to find you. So what habit or consistent practice do you feel has had the greatest impact on your life so far? Question the status quo. Be an far. iconoclast. <laughs> uh, and again, not trying to be eccentric or just be an iconoclast for the sake of it. It's just question the status quo. Mm -hmm. Question traditional wisdom. Question authority, right? Mm -hmm. Respectfully, with data, with information, but question it because there's no progress without change and you wouldn't change if everything was the way it's supposed to be, right? So that's one. Uh, I also am I'm a, I'm a fairly consistent meditator, and I think that's been, that's been a good thing. Also, I practice yoga, and that has been also a good thing. I would say those three are pretty good. For those who want to read the article we've been referring to, I'll link to it in the show notes. It, uh, I highly encourage you to find Luis on LinkedIn. Of course, we'll link to his uh, LinkedIn page. Are, are you on Twitter? Are you other places? No, man, I'm not. I'm kind of hard to find, to be honest with you. And, yeah. and I don't know why that is. It's just, I, I, I'm not a guy who enjoys the spotlight for, yeah. for as much as Do you as mind I'm... if I give your email? No, not at all. Luis um, at GrowSolar Yeah, right? yeah, no, go ahead and give it away. So as, as many of you know, I'm running this uh, practice of consulting, helping companies in Latin America expand within the region, uh, beyond their borders, and bring um, you know foreign companies into the region, helping them kind of cross some of the obstacles that we've all been discussing here. So Luis at Gross Order Latam, uh, that's one way to find me. Uh, the website is still under construction, so don't expect to find a whole lot there. There's a LinkedIn page, of course, yep. and, you know, Luis Morales and LinkedIn, uh, you'll find me there. But I'm not on Twitter, man. I'm not on Instagram <laughs> or, or Facebook one. or one of those. Yeah, yeah, well, I encourage you to, I often encourage everyone really to find one and lean into mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that LinkedIn for our industry is uh, is a great one. And if you still haven't figured out how to navigate LinkedIn, I really strongly encourage you to go back to episodes, I don't know, 60 something, I think, yeah, with Scott yeah, Sullivan. Yeah, yeah that, where, was, that, was, that was precious. That was good. Yeah, yeah. really some ju some jewels of wisdom in there. Cool. We'll finish the way we always do. And I'm, I'm almost, I feel sad that we're coming to the end, but. I know. We, I wish I could be here longer. We, I wish we didn't have another appointment right after this. I know, and, yeah. but end we must. And so yeah. uh, we will end as we always do. Luis, what do you see happening in the market that perhaps no one else is paying attention to? What's in your crystal ball? Distributed generation is bigger than people think in Latin America, a lot bigger, and it's only going to get bigger. Whereas all the, a lot of the excitement is around, has been around other segments of the market, I think distributed solar, distributed generation is, is pretty big. Mm. Well, I already said our kids will be vegan, <laughs> right? Um, well, the other thing I see is energy will eventually be free. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not going to happen in the next five years or the next 10 years, perhaps, but energy will be free. Yeah. And once energy becomes free, uh, a lot of, a whole lot of other dynamics will sit in. Right. The fossil fuel industry will not be able to compete with free energy or very, very cheap energy. Yeah. Energy is mm. going to be free. And therein lies my charge to you, Solar mm -hmm. Warrior. What business will you build that will leverage the eventuality of a world where energy is mm -hmm. free? What business will you layer on top of the free energy grid to add value mm -hmm. when value uh, for the kilowatt hour is already depleted to zero? Mm -hmm. Well, we've had fun in this interview, and I hope that you will join us again for another. Mr. Luis Morales, thank you for joining Suncast. 
Well, thank you, uh, Nico. It really is, is, is an honor to be here, man, among the company of so many just smart and accomplished entrepreneurs and to spend an hour with you, man. This is, this is great. I hope we can do it again. We will. We shall. All right. Power on, Solar Warriors. Well, that's a wrap with today's Solar Warrior and Suncast Tribe member number one, Mr. Luis Morales. If you'd like to have a closer look at the article we referenced in today's discussion or just learn more about Luis and his new ventures, then click the listen button over at mysuncast.com. That'll take you to the episode page where you could get the show notes, social media and website links and fantastic book recommendations, as well as check out the 140 other interviews chock full of goodies just like this one. While you're there, do check out the Suncast Tribe where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on that member button where you can learn more. And at least don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter so you're always notified when the next episode is out. I also share other goodies in there like where I'm traveling and what we are thinking about collectively as a tribe to push this whole industry forward. So go ahead and give me that email. Hey, I am so thrilled that you choose to be here investing the most important resource you have, which is your time. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.